0: I don't regard the wartime artwork created by Obata, Mineokubo, Hisako and Matsusaprohibi, or even Yasuyo Kuniyoshi as necessarily documentary in nature. And I see them as visual representations or interpretations of the challenging situations they were living through. I think looking at them, they were sharing with us their subjective point of view, but also emotional experience in that moment. Their interviews offer some context in which I could then place their particular artwork and try to understand to the extent possible what they were going through at the time of creating that image.
1: Hello and welcome to Articulated. I'm Rihilko Weno. I work as an archivist here at the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation, Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been building the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These more than 2,500 long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded through the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. This is the second of two episodes on the arts and Japanese-American incarceration during World War II. In this episode, we will learn about the aftermath of the incarceration and its reverberations still felt today. If you're just tuning in, go back and listen to Season 3, Episode 1 for more historical context and firsthand accounts of life within the camps. From 1942 to 1946, more than 125,000 Japanese Americans were forcefully relocated into roughly 75 incarceration camps. While the War Relocation Authority had sought to bring incarceration to an end in early 1944, the election delayed action until December of that year when the Supreme Court issued a decision stating that the U.S. government could no longer continue to keep conceitedly loyal citizens imprisoned in camps any longer. The Roosevelt administration then rescinded Executive Order 9066 that had led to the establishment of the camps, which had now been operating for two years. As camps closed throughout 1945 and 1946, Japanese-Americans began their reverse migration back to the lives they had been forced to leave behind. They had lost their homes, jobs, businesses, and belongings. Many returned to the West Coast to replant roots after their hardships, while others started anew in different areas of the country everyone was forced to start over. Before he was a leading abstract painter of the Pacific Northwest, Frank Okada and his family were removed from Seattle and sent to the incarceration camps when he was 11 years old. During the war, both of his older brothers served in the U.S. Army after Japanese-American citizens were allowed to join the military effort in 1943. After the war, Okada studied fine arts in Seattle and traveled the world, eventually settling in Oregon in 1969, where he painted and taught from 1969 until his death in 2000. In his 1990 oral history with Barbara Johns, he described the nation's long reconciliation with history as well as his own. What do you remember about camp and
2: the
3: conditions?
4: Well, I wasn't really indignant, because it seemed like a lot of fun to you know, it's like an extended summer camp, in a sense. When you're 11 and 12. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't realize. And so if the indignity certainly co- comes to, con- you, know, you know, some conscious sort of thoughts after you're matured and, mm-hmm. and you look back. and. Uh, when
5: did you get angry?
4: Well, I didn't get angry, you know. But, uh, you know, it was an indignity, and uh, I think the older people really suffered, you know. Great sacrifices. I, I think a lot of people never made it. It really killed their will. Yeah. You know, I mean, they come back and they're. Of your
5: parents' generation.
4: Yeah, they come back, they're almost 60 and uh, had to start all over again. Uh, some people just uh, could never make it. Yeah. Which is a sad part. You know, it's more about a sadness than uh, to have, you know, so and to. To say that I'm indignant is like indignant at who, mm. you know, in a sense, except the system. And so since my indignity or my consciousness about that came oh, much later, that, you know. And in about
2: the, what time do you place that?
4: Oh, I suppose, um, you know, this uh, thought in the late 60s when uh, the idea of, of uh, the importance of uh, your cultural heritage and your cultural identity was Im- important, you know, uh, you know, with the Chicanos and with the blacks, and, uh, with Asian-American movements. And I suppose my interest came because of uh, the Asian-American thing. I think artistically was a literary movement initially. People like Frank Chin or La Saminata, they're mm-hmm. the people... Who had my brother's book republished, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and being are abs-
3: talking about an ethnic consciousness, yeah, in the a- a-
4: Asian American, does you identify? Yeah, as, as a and uh, and uh, so I became uh, aware of it, and 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 the written word is so much more precise in terms of describing things, yes. and and what I paint is uh, hard to uh, align with uh, that kind of thing.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: But, you know, you think about it a lot, you know, and so... Well, I think to a great degree uh, the kind of uh, ambience of my painting... When I think about painting, I always think about, at least in my stage, because you know, I'm going to be 59 in November, you know, no, I've lived three quarters of my life, at least, you know. I see it. my painting... Uh, as a more dedicatory object than s- something that's...
2: Do you mean, you say dedicatory, uh, meditative or reflective?
4: Dedicatory in, in terms of maybe like a kind of a monument dedicated to the dead or something, you know, like a Chinese stuff,
6: mm-hmm. you
4: know, with the sutras sort of carved yeah. in the back. Mm-hmm. I see it like that because... Uh, but, you know, I sort of sensed the uh, sort of remembrance of the past.
1: One of the leaders in memorial projects around the incarceration is Wendy Maruyama, a woodworker and furniture designer who has made a life teaching and creating around the globe. Born in Colorado, Maruyama's maternal family rarely spoke of the pain they experienced during incarceration and she has spent decades unpacking what it means to engage with tradition, heritage, and trauma through her work and pedagogy. Since 2009, she has been at work on the series Executive Order 9066, in which she painstakingly recreates the more than 120,000 tags that Japanese Americans wore during the incarceration, which included names, ID numbers, and designated camps. Maruyama positioned this project within broader cultural trends in her 2010 oral history with Mija Riedel. I do know that you know some excellent African-American artists have been doing this
3: for years. Mm-hmm. And I've admired them for doing that. And I've often wondered how I should interpret an ethnic or historical experience through my work. Right. And I'm owning art, you know, dabbling in that. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult. It takes time. Yes. I mean, right now, I feel like a year ago, the work that I started doing was certainly a beginning, Mm -hmm. but not fully resolved by, if anything, it's almost um, an elementary attempt. Well, at this point, Mm -hmm. because right now I'm using the obvious uh, visual clues, like photographs of the barracks and the... Tags, the tags, and the bulb dryer. Right. But it's hard paper. Somehow trying to find a language that would imply those things Mm -hmm. without being literal Mm -hmm. has been a huge challenge for me, and that's something I'm working on Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. You know,
2: the new work that I'm thinking of EO 9066 and the tag project. They feel like such a fusion of personal and political work. Mm-hmm. They, um, the materials, the forms, mm-hmm. yeah, in between the personal and the political, or the fusion of the personal and the political seems to have created a very poetic, mm-hmm. not new kind of work, more so than then it feels especially poetic
3: to me. Does it feel that way to you? feel true. I mean, it would certainly be my hopes that people would get that feeling mm-hmm. from the work. I think what's been more rewarding for me we connected, you know, with the Japanese American community that yeah. I rejected right. years ago yeah. because of my perceived, my perception of their judgment on me. Mm-hmm. At that time, maybe. kind of hard to put my finger on that. Mm-hmm, no.
2: Mm-hmm. No. And with time and distance, we've right. been able to re examine it. And something, I don't know if
3: it's I certainly coming back saying, you not know, an Asian American can be an artist and still be successful. We don't all have to be lawyers and doctors and Landcape architect, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. there is some satisfaction in being able to bring that into play. Yes. but no, that that's, that's being that's a small part of it that I wouldn't really want to emphasize. But if anything, it bringing together the community. Yes. There are people who were interned or evacuated from California Mm -hmm. that are still alive, Mm -hmm. and they're participating in this project Mm -hmm. and telling me their stories. And at the same time, young people are coming to this Mm thing and learning from the stories that are being told. Mm -hmm. And, you know, getting kind of a... As they write the tag, hopefully they're thinking about what that person who originally wrote the tag must have been thinking right. in 1942 right. when they were being shipped off to God Known Fair, you know. So the, that experience has been, for them, very powerful right. to contribute to this project.
2: Right. And this project, the tag project, we should say for people who are listening or reading, um, is also very different for you than anything
3: you've done before. It is very different. Yes, it's it's, it's why I even thought to do it is beyond me. But I think the photographs. I mean, my only my only connection with what happened there. Was through my family experience, mm-hmm. okay? Because my mm-hmm. photograph, they never told stories about that. that you know, they never talked about it. So I have no nothing to grab onto. It was it's your
2: mother's my family. My mother's
3: family that yeah. was in
2: one of the camps. They
3: didn't go to camp. They were, you know, everybody was totally to evacuated. Okay, and so. If you got the hell out of this exclusion zone by a uh-huh. certain time, okay. you didn't have to go to camp. I see. And if, I mean, most people didn't have anywhere to go. Right. So they went to camp, and my parents, my little my family didn't have anywhere to go either. Right. But they went anyway. Okay. Probably a mistake thinking back on it because they were pulled away from that community. Uh huh. And so, they were left to fend for themselves out in Utah. And, Is that where you know, they went, to Utah? And I'm sure that they experienced some um, show difficulties. I'm sure. While they were trying to find a place to go. Mm-hmm. So, then, so if, what was I talking about before that? The TED project
2: and, and community?
3: So anyway, uh, how I came up with the paint project. Yeah. The most compelling, so I did a little bit of research. And Dorothea Lange's photographs were the most, to me, the, the best way to imagine what was going on during that time. And what really stuck in my mind were the photographs of families wearing their tags getting ready to be shipped off to. God knows where, and I just remember those tags were so significant. Uh, just paper, but like a very heavy arm check, you know? Yeah. But she was to think about a hundred, ten thousand of them. So I decided to start with kind of my, I just, why I thought of this, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Part of me was shoes I never did. <laughs> it's a lot of tags, yeah. you know? Four of the other camps are finished for the names and the numbers go, but I still have to age them. And then I have about three more camps. Wait a minute. Five more camps mm-hmm. to finish. And I keep saying it's gonna be done in two years, but it's, only, it's already been a year. Right. And I don't see this being finished in one year. Right. I think realistically, Four years would be more likely mm-hmm. unless I figure out a way to, to get some funding mm-hmm. to hire somebody to kind of help. It's kind of hard to do this and teach and do my own work and, mm-hmm. and you know, have a domestic to feed the dogs. <laughs> so it you know, the, the challenge yes. The community has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. My mother and your friends and the church, the Buddhist temple, Mm -hmm. the local high schools Mm -hmm. have all been fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then we're having another tank project at the Smithsonian, Mm -hmm. which I think would be very interesting.
1: We spoke with Shibu Wang, a scholar of Asian-American art and curator of an upcoming exhibition, Pictures of Belonging, Miki Hayakawa, Hisako Hibi, and Mina Okubo, which explores the works of those three Japanese-American artists. The incarceration and the long shadow of xenophobia obscured the work of these women, and Wang has undertaken the monumental task of recuperating and reframing their achievements.
0: I'm Shipu Wang, professor of art history and the Coates endowed chair in the arts. At the University of California Merced. For the past 20 years, my work has focused on rediscovering and re- reintroducing the work of less studied pre World War II American artists of Japanese descent to a broader audience through publications and exhibitions. The exhibition is called Pictures of Belonging Miki Hayakawa, Hisako Hibi, and Mineo Kubo. The Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles is the organizing institution for a five-venue, three-year tour. And the show will first open in February 2024 at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, then travel to the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, and the Monterey Museum of Art before concluding in Los Angeles in January, 2027. Pictures belonging features more than 100 pieces of artwork by three American artists who share the distinction of being trailblazing women of Japanese descent of the pre-World War II generations from California. And while these were less known names, say for Okubo perhaps, my research shows that they were in fact critically acclaimed artists with illustrious careers that spanned 8 decades, and their long careers are especially remarkable, considering that they lived through the exclusion era, 1882 to 1965, characterized by U.S. laws that restricted immigration and prevented Asian immigrants from becoming naturalized American citizens, among other consequential policies. Such pervasive xenophobia contributed to the removal and incarceration of some 120,000 Japanese Americans after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, and indeed Hibi and Okubo were imprisoned at the Topaz camp in Utah and later relocated to New York. Hayakawa, on the other hand, left California, her home for more than 30 years, and moved to New Mexico. Yet, persevering through challenging circumstances, all three artists never stopped making art. So in this exhibition, by placing the artists' representative works in dialogue with each other for the first time. I'm hoping to highlight the range and depth of these artists' work, their engagement with, and contributions to 20th century American art, as well as their connections with one another that have not been explored in exhibitions or publications. But more crucial, Pictures of Belonging broadens the existing, almost exclusive spotlight on Japanese Americans' wartime trauma toward illuminating what American experience looked like through these artists' work made before, during, and after the war, it explores the myriad ways in which art for these artists served as a vital means to capture lived experiences, navigate through good times and bad, and build relationships in diverse communities from San Francisco to Santa Fe to New York City. So the exhibition asked the visitors to consider how art making enabled these artists to take up space to use its positive connotation to make their presence and existence visible and to assert that they belong. I think one of the things I've learned to try to highlight is that while the history of World War II and the incarceration is important, sometimes we forget that these artists were active members in different communities before the war and after the war that they tried to rebuild their lives.
1: From the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles, Kristen Hayashi told us about the life and work of Mine Okubo, one of the subjects of Wang's show and a force in 20th century American art. She detailed how Okubo's documentary efforts in the camps shapes the historical and political reception of the incarceration while forming an indelible artistic legacy.
7: I'm Kristen Hayashi. I'm um, Director of Collections Management and Access and a curator at the Japanese American National Museum, which is located in Los Angeles, California. And we are the largest repository of Japanese American material culture and archives and artwork ephemera in the world. And so our collection is very large. We're a very active collecting institution, and it's comprised of a number of collections, including the Mineo Kubo collection, which came into the museum in 2007. And it's this amazing treasure trove of artwork by the artist uh, Mineo Kubo. Mostly her World War II artwork and also post-war artwork that she created sort of late into life. So in in 2021, uh, we realized that it was a very significant milestone anniversary for Citizen 13660, which was an illustrative memoir by Mineo Kubo. It was the first book-length memoir by a former incarceree. um, And it was also one of the first, like, illustrative or graphic memoirs, I think, to be created. And so Mineo Kubo published this illustrative memoir in 1946. And Janem felt like, you know, we were um, in a unique position to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the first publishing because we have... All of what we call the original illustrations that comprised the memoir, as well as so many of the quick sketches that I think inspired a lot of the illustrations that Mineo Kubo created while she was incarcerated both at Tan Fran Temporary Detention Center in San Bruno, California, as well as the Topaz concentration camp in Utah. So, you know, she was born in 1912 in Riverside, California, and she and her siblings were encouraged by their parents to be artists. And uh, Minet started at community college here in Riverside, but she finished her education at University of California, Berkeley. She got a bachelor's and an MFA in art in the 1920s, 1930s, which is pretty amazing, you know, I think for a woman. She showed a lot of promise. She got this very prestigious art fellowship, which allowed her to go to Europe and she was learning under all these masters Then, you know, war broke out in Europe, and her friends there suggested that she return to the U.S. so she didn't get caught in Europe during this war. So she returned to the United States and had this really burgeoning art career. I mean, she was working for the Federal Arts Project and working under Diego Rivera on a fresco mural in San Francisco and just had this really promising career. And then, you know, 1942 really upends her life. She and her brother were forced to leave their home and community in the Bay Area, in Berkeley. And, you know, I think she really shifts her artistic practice and her focus. At that time, Japanese Americans who were forced to leave their homes and communities were not allowed to take cameras. And so she felt from very early on that she needed to document this experience of the forced removal. And so with a pen and sketchbook in hand, she was creating these sketches of her neighbors, her, you know, fellow Japanese Americans, who had, you know, piles of their belongings on curves outside of their homes, um, getting ready for this forced removal. And then she just continued to sketch. She was known for always having a sketchbook and pen or pencil in hand and just created so prolifically thousands of these quick or minute sketches, just documenting daily life, both at Tanfran and at Topaz. And she was very intent not only on capturing this experience, but also sharing it with others, especially friends on the outside, to let them know what was going on. So Citizen 13660 was published in 1946 by Columbia University Press at a time when the incarceration experience was still a current event. It wasn't even recent history yet. And so it's it's really amazing to think, like, how was she able to publish that? What I think is also so masterful about Citizen 13660, it's an illustrative memoir comprised of 198 illustrations, each accompanied by a caption. And I think the art and the text work together to tell a more comprehensive story of of what she experienced. But the illustrations themselves are quite accessible. I think they draw you in. And maybe sometimes at first glance, it seems like she's using humor. But I think as you take a closer look, and you're drawn in, you can really see the layered complexity in the drawings. Mine Okubo, she participated in the Crick hearings. So the federal government established this commission for the wartime relocation and internment of civilians to better understand the impacts and the consequences of the incarceration. Okubo testified, and she read excerpts from Citizen 13660, and I think maybe that's when it got a lot of attention, and from then on, I think has been seen as this really important literature in this fight for social justice. It's hard to say that I have a favorite, but I kind of (laughs) do. There's one that I think is just so effective in communicating this, this complexity. There's an illustration where Mine and her brother, Toku, arrive at Topaz. So this is after this long train journey from the Bay Area in California to this remote part of Utah. They arrive to the Topaz concentration camp, to a welcome sign that says, welcome to Topaz. And there's a Boy Scout drum and bugle corps that's, you know, playing almost like this welcoming band in the background. And in the foreground, you see Minet, her brother, and some recent arrivals, like shielding their faces from these harsh elements, from the wind, the dust, and the sun. You know, I think it sort of prompts this question of how can Like this inhospitable climate be welcoming? And the answer is it can't, right? There's the the irony right there. Um, So I think that's a really effective illustration that shows that. I think because we have this comprehensive collection, there's so many favorites because, you know, we can see her process. We have all of the illustrations that comprise Citizen 13660 are available on Janum's website.
1: In 1980, President Jimmy Carter's administration organized the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians to study the effects of incarceration. In 1983, they recommended that reparations be paid to each living detainee. Nearly 50 years after Executive Order 9066 was decreed, President George H.W. Bush made an official apology for the disgraces of American history. Another decade passed before Congress approved funds to preserve former camps as memorials in 2001, stating that these sites will forever stand as reminders that this nation failed in its most sacred duty to protect its citizens against prejudice, greed, and political expediency. The traditions and families carried on in their own ways, with and against the grain of history. Mira Nakashima, a furniture designer and architect based in New Hope, Pennsylvania, recounted her family's time in the camps and her inheritance from her father, famed woodworker and key figure of the American craft movement, George Nakashima, in her 2010 oral history with James McElhinney. In
6: 1942, I was born and we were put in the camps. Uh, You know, I was six weeks old when we went into the camps on the desert.
8: Which camp? Uh, Idaho,
6: the uh, Minidoka camp. Mom and Dad lived in a little apartment in Seattle, but I wasn't there very long. No. And uh, Mom had a tough time. You know, just, she, my, and my aunt went with me. The aunt that had been in Tokyo mm-hmm. came back to Los Angeles. I guess she had been there for the wedding or something. And her father lived in Los Angeles. Anyway, since we were put in the camps, the Nakashima and Okajima family decided if they had to be uprooted from where they were and what they were doing, the best thing they could do was to be together. So we were all together in that one camp, the Okajimas and uh, the Nakashima, as much as possible. So my grandparents were there, and uh, my aunts and uncles. Oh, actually, most of my uncles were in the service, so they weren't there.
8: Yeah, you spoke about that before. They were in the 442.
6: Oh, yeah, that's my, my, uh, my Aunt Mary's husband. Yeah, he just passed away. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was a good old soldier. He was the epitome of the art of gammon. You know the the term gammon, is is to uh, I don't know what the best translation is, but it's basically the tough upper lip, holding up
8: under hardship.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. or straight. What is it? Stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip. Yeah, the British <laughs> yeah. stiff upper lip.
8: Yeah. Well, that that unit was the most decorated and. and Took the highest casualties, yes. or of any American infantry.
6: Well, they know. basically sent them out as disposable troops.
8: Cannon fodder. Yeah. Well, they certainly did leave a distinguished record. Yeah,
6: did those that survived.
8: Were you a part of the genesis of this exhibition at
6: all? Or no, it? no, I was not. This this was uh, based on collections of artifacts that people had remaining after the the camp era. And they said there was, you know, there's probably still stuff in people's attics and basements that hasn't been uncovered. But there was enough uncovered. Probably it was, it must have been connected with the Japanese American National Museum. I haven't read that part of it yet. I don't know. But the Japanese American National Museum in in Los Angeles was one of the first museums or probably the the best museum to, to bring that. The whole situation to the light and to memorialize it and commemorate it and, and collect things from that.
8: It's an interesting image because it's Hard Mountain, mm-hmm. Wyoming, mm-hmm. and uh, right outside of Cody. Mm-hmm. And and I was there a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. actually, uh, there's a lot of effort underway to interpret the camps and to create a memorial, or mm-hmm. they have established.
6: Yeah, so most of the campsites have been declared national monuments. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to figure out what to do there. There's one in uh, Bainbridge Island, where most of the Japanese Americans in, in Washington were shipped out from first. And that's, um, that's pretty well built. They've designed mm-hmm. and built quite a memorial there. They were talking about doing one at Minidoka. I don't think they've gotten very far. You know, when they first, when was it, 1990? Right after my dad died, they gave us reparations money, finally. So dad never saw it, but they gave it to mother. But that was uh, the result of a, a long <clears throat> period of, of negotiations, trying to make the government recognize the fact that all these American citizens had been incarcerated wrongly.
8: Half a century yeah. waiting.
6: But I mean, that's part of gammon too. Mm-hmm. In Japanese culture, you, you respect authority, you respect the government. You put up with whatever you have. You respect uh, your husband, even if he goes out and leaves you. <laughs> and you put up with it. And that's, that was so deeply ingrained in the Japanese society that, that uh, it wasn't until 50, like 50 years later when my generation decided it's time to speak out and do something.
8: Mm-hmm.
6: Actually, there were a lot of people in the Nisei generation who were brave enough to start the movement going, too.
8: What did your father do in the camps?
6: Um, he and uh, this fellow named Gentaro Hikogawa, who was a Japanese carpenter trained in Japan, worked together to try to make the barracks livable. And they do, they, that was again one of those green projects, you use sustainable materials from whatever you could scrounge. They used packing boxes and, and uh, little bits of bitter brush that they found uh, on the desert, which doesn't grow there anymore. <laughs> and, and I think rushes, there. were, well, I found... When I was in, um, I gave a talk in Sun Valley in two thousand and four. When our show, the Nature Form and Spirit Show, was there, and I asked them if I could have a day or two down to go down and visit Minidoka because I had never been back. And there was a professor from I think University of Boise or Idaho or somewhere who uh, had photocopied records um, just little sketches there weren't detailed sketches but there was a sketch that my father had done as a, a way of making our barracks livable it was it was convertible furniture it was it was a frame you take the two cot that, two metal cots that you were given and put them together as a double bed and make a frame around them and you can make a table that 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 folded up into the wall because there wasn't any room and there was a bench where you could uh, store coal underneath, and the, and the top flipped up, and, and, and you could sit on it when you it weren't taking coal in or out. And, uh, and a whole series of things like that. And there were rushes he used somehow or other in a decorative way that were taken from the, the river riverbank, And uh, so he was busy just making stuff, I guess. Designing and making stuff. And there, there's pictures of him, which the WRA took. a <coughs> little shop uh, in in the camp where he actually I mean, had some tools.
8: What kind of tools did he have available to him in the camp?
6: Not a whole lot. I think it was mostly hand tools. In the beginning, they weren't allowed. I think to have anything sharp. <laughs> But as time went on, they, uh, there was a funny story that I heard when I was in Minidoka that they said that they were in such a rush to get the internees out of the, uh, the halfway place into the permanent, semi-permanent camps, that they weren't finished by the time they got there. They, they, you know the, backs, the barracks were sort of half done and, and they didn't have time to put up all the buyer wire around the barracks. So they, they were still working on it when the internees were there. And the, so the Americans would go out and put up barbed wire fences during the day. The Japanese would come out at night and take them all down. So this went on for like several weeks, and they finally decided there was nowhere to go anyway. So, so they gave up with the barbed wire. Um, I think there were armed guards, and they weren't allowed to go out for, you know, uh, certain er- of certain areas. But Dad and this carpenter were, were allowed out to go uh, forage for materials. Um, but and as, as time went on, I think they were gradually, you know accumulated hand tools. But I don't don't remember there are any power tools maybe.
8: Are any of the pieces that he built in those years in existence now?
6: I believe so. I still have a toy box that he made for me. At that time. Patty
1: Warashina, a ceramicist based in Seattle, wrote an addendum to her 2005 oral history that detailed the many disparate threads of the war experienced by her family and how she felt the lingering tensions from the war in her own life. She recently recorded that segment for us.
5: After World War II started, my Aunt Yoshi and my grandmother, Granny, were separated from their friends in Tacoma and sent to Arkansas Rora Relocation Center because my aunt was a skilled dietitian. The government dispersed those who had practical skills that could be used in various relocation camps. She used to talk about going out of the camp compound and seeing green snakes hanging in the trees and eating a lot of shrimp like creatures, possibly crayfish, which came out of the ground to replace the tiresome spam, which was the allocated protein. When I was young, the Japanese in Spokane were not relocated to the camps because we lived east of the Columbia River and perhaps because of our local Caucasian minister, Reverend Cobb, who was our minister at the Japanese Methodist Church. Mom thought he must have had some big influence in the regional community. In terms of my own immediate and other Japanese families, it was a difficult time, even though we did not go to camp and stayed in Spokane. My mother used to always become teary-eyed when he broached the subject of the war. She told me that the bank accounts were frozen and that my immigrant Dad was stopped from collecting dental fees for a period of time from his patients. My parents became friends of the Angelos, a German immigrant family who also helped my parents by paying cash for my dad's dental work. I suppose they were also experiencing prejudice because of their German accents. I remember as a child going to their home on the South Hill at Christmas time after the war, admiring all the handcrafted German crushes, decorations, and cookies that we were offered. By this very sweet elderly German woman. During the war, Japanese Americans were confined to the city proper during the curfew. My folks started to sell some of their belongings since they anticipated being sent to camps. As those on the coast were allowed two bags per person. I don't have any photos of my dad's early life in Japan. As my parents burned any photos of boys in school uniforms, which looked like military, but were just school uniforms. They destroyed anything that might look suspicious to the government or misinterpreted as having an allegiance to Japan. After the cleansing, I recall the government searching our home. I was told they were looking into medicine cabinets for drugs as well as guns and shortwave radios. They also searched the steamer trunks in the bedroom that had kimonos in them. I'm not sure how my parents and friend were able to survive that time, but what amazes me is how non-confrontational the Japanese community was during and also after the war. I also remember my parents sending used clothing and care packages to my dad's family in Japan after the war. Since the war had decimated their economy, after eight years after the war, they allowed Japanese Americans to return to Japan for visits to their families there. It was a big deal, and I remember driving two days from Spokane to Seattle to reach the new SeaTac Airport, Seattle-Tacoma International Airport in Washington to pick up my dad when he returned. My father brought many reminders of Japanese heritage, such as scrolls, artwork from his art teacher, colorful kimonos, jewelry, pearls, ceramics, and recent photos of my grandfather and grandmother outside the front gate of their farm, which my dad later helped them buy. It made a big impression on me since before that time, I felt a repression of my culture in public because of political circumstances and the lack of its availability in Spokane. I remember feeling an innate connection with these articles and somehow that I was a part of it, although I was living in Eastern Washington, away from the large Japanese community on the West Coast.
1: We asked Pu Wang to describe his experience unpacking and preserving the histories of artists whose lives are marked by a traumatic event.
0: I didn't have the pleasure of knowing these artists, as some people do, so I had to rely quite a bit on their own words to get a better sense of their ideas on life and art and their emotional experiences of living through such challenging times. Their interviews offer some context in which I could then place their particular artwork and tried to understand to the extent possible what they were going through at the time of creating that image. For example, in interviews that Hisako Hibi gave, she talked about surviving the wartime incarceration and losing her husband, fellow artist Matsusaburo George Hibi, in 1947, barely two years after they regained freedom and moved to New York. And she called that her gray period in her art. And we can indeed see the changes of color palettes and subject matter in her paintings from the immediate post-war period to her later years when she found her vibrant colors and really tried to express herself in a creative way. And in Mine Ogubo's interviews and her letters to friends and colleagues, of which she kept numerous duplicates, by the way, We can get a better sense of her as an artist trying to make ends meet in New York. Her critique of a prejudiced art world, her self-imposed mission to unlearn her art training and return to the simplified forms in art, and as a friend who sent hand-drawn greeting cards year after year. And these materials all provide a different picture of the artist in addition to their artwork that then we can get a fuller picture of them as creative beings. I don't regard the wartime artwork created by Obata, Mineokubo, Hisako, and Matsusaprohibi or even Yasuyo Kuniyoshi as necessarily documentary in nature. And I see them as visual representations or interpretations of the challenging situations they were living through. I think looking at them, they were sharing with us their subjective point of view, but also emotional experience in that moment. I hope the show will also encourage people to think about how do we define belonging? Who gets to belong to a certain group? And does it have to be one group or could it be multiple groups being porous of their borders? They traverse the boundaries and it doesn't have to be just one category. I think these three artists, really show that because they have such so many decades of living in different communities. Hopefully that's a story that inspires people to think more about how we define artists, how we create sometimes categories to put them in, and what are more productive and meaningful ways of talking about these artists in a more open-ended fashion.
1: This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang, and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble with Harlan Parker Conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aa.si.edu slash articulated. The Archives is especially grateful to Shi Pu Wang and Kristen Hayashi for their expertise and generosity in the realization of this episode. Special thanks to Gabby Seno for her research, energy, and insight. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aa.si.edu/support. Thank you.